0: So here we are. We are week five in our Apocalypse Now series. Um I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't know who I feel more sorry for in terms of how much stuff we have to go through today. Um maybe you pray for me as I pray for you. <laughs> um but hopefully we can we 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 will it will happen at a pace that will hopefully be a blessing and um give us maybe again not going into the details as one would like but just that overview and sometimes as I said we really do gain a better picture of looking at things as we kind of you know kind of reminds me of Habakkuk isn't it? Um, Write the word down in such a way that he who runs will be able to read it. It's almost like trying to portray modern advertising, isn't it? The big billboard is that at the end of the day, the gospel should be able to fit down into such a way that even the person who doesn't know time to really read, as they go past it, they will be able to understand something of the message of the gospel. And so therefore, we are not to, again, look at this as a a deficit, but as a blessing. So I want to begin my praying. So in terms of format, we've got four chapters to go through today and so i want to read them one by one and then kind of break down i have like i said we will not we will be spared the details but we are going to definitely capture the highlights so bear with me as we do that but initially i need to kind of have a long run in because i need to be able to kind of give us a framework in how to, we're going to go through the book of Revelation and understand it in maybe a very new light, in a way that we haven't maybe understood. And as the title of the series suggests, Apocalypse Now, how Revelation is already unfolding all around us. Uh, and not just we're in the, in the process of the preliminaries of moving into, a a, a I guess, a, a final state of the world, but we are already experiencing Final stages of the world, even as the apostles 2,000 years ago were already experiencing the final stages of the world. So, as we deal with that, um, hopefully it will be a blessing to you and um, helpful in more than one way. So, let me pray before we kind of jump in. So, Lord, we are so thankful that every morning, there, Lord God, you give us grace, Lord God, and to the time, there, Lord Father. The grace will be extended where we won't wake up and it will be with you. So Lord, every day, there, God, is a blessing in your kingdom. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come on the Lord's Day, to come around your word, gather as so many have done over the centuries, dear Lord God, and said, Lord, feed me today. Give us that manna. Give us that bread from heaven, there, Lord God. That bread, there, Lord God, that Moses said that we shouldn't just live by the fact that we can, buy. you know, we're not just biological units. We don't just need to feed our body, but we need to feed our soul. So as we come, there, Lord God, and we sing praises to you, that feeds our soul, there, Lord God. It's not for you, there, Lord God, though we know, there, Lord Father, heaven is a place, God, in which worship never ceases. And, you know, it's right for us to do it, but, Lord, it blesses us because we're responding as our creator would have us do, acknowledging you. Lord, as we give of our time, as we come and obviously make the effort to be here there, Lord God, and prepare ourselves for the service, again, that's a blessing. Lord, if we give of our attention to your word, again, that's an act of our worship. And so Lord, as we feed us by your Holy Spirit, expand our understanding, give us manna for the week ahead, even maybe give us perspective for the week that has passed. Lord, what have I done? What 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 have I learned? Where are we going to? Lord, again, maybe this time will pro- provide deep answers to those. So Lord, be with us, Lord, as we go through this um, four chapters there, Lord God of Revelation. Have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. By way of title, Sound the Alarm, Another Person Suffering. Yes. Introduction. Well, I wanted to start with a quote, again, something, again, that hopefully frames for us what's going on. And it's a a quote from a famous, um, well, I guess, within the the Russian circles now, somewhat infamous um, reputation, but... For us in the West, I guess, maybe still legitimate. But Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his, well, I guess it was more for, more so a speech before it was actually written up in a book, but it's in a book called Men Have Forgotten God. And it's a short quote, but a poignant one. Today's world has reached a state which if it had been described to proceed in centuries would have called forth the cry this is the apocalypse yet we have grown used to this kind of world we even feel at home in it so let me put out my stall in terms of how are we to understand the book of Revelation, as not within the traditional sense. And when I say traditional sense, I mean probably more so in relation to the last, say, 200 years. Of how we've tried to understand Revelation as referring to seven years leading up to the day of the Lord, the final day, as opposed to the Revelation being something that has been understood as being relevant right from Acts 1. The ascension of the Lord, you know, again, we were reading that this morning, Acts 2, in that famous sermon, Joel, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That, that whole idea that we, we always kind of grew up, and I know I had this idea that the, the, that the apostles were misunderstood when they were talking about the last days because they thought that Jesus was going to come anytime soon. But when you read them, especially Peter, doesn't seem to have that idea at all. Obviously, he's expecting Jesus, but he's not like, oh, I'm disappointed that he hasn't come within the last 30 years. But he always spoke in this tone of, we're in the last days. Apocalyptic literature is a challenge to understand, but... It is an effective way to convey vast quantities of information in a condensed form. So this is the way, way we, 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 tell, we tell stories. You know, to give you kind of an example how genres work. So traditional comic books, particularly American comic books, they're designed to convey vast amounts of information in very short form format. Through going through panels. Whereas Japanese comics, manga comics, are designed to be expansive. In other words, you can be in one read one comic, and it's just what's going on in one character's mind. And so therefore it, it expands time. And so you're getting very quick successive thoughts put into an expansive format. So, genres are supposed to do that. So, apocalyptic, because I believe we're covering such a vast amount of time, apocalyptic literature is the best way to convey lots of information in a generalized form. Again, think of binary code like computing. If you were to sit down and read the ones and the zeros, you will understand nothing of what is actually being transmitted. Is that a movie? Is that a song? Is that a document? Is it a program? We would not know until it's re-encoded in such a way that we can see it as images represented on the screen. And that's what we need, is we need a framework to re-encode the language of it so that we can see clearly what it means. So to just straightforward read it, in a format where we think that, well, a straight English reading of this text will give me good understanding of it, we'll be misleading ourselves. For this reason, I think books like Daniel, Zechariah, and the Gospels are just a few of the books, but particularly some of the most important ones for understanding and grasping the ability to re-encode Revelation. So in other words, what did church history believe? What did the Israelite community believe leading up to this? So this section we're about to enter will require us to make an interpretive stance. If we're going to understand it, we need to look back at Matthew 24. So remember, Matthew 24 is one of my go-to texts for trying to re-encode this book. And we need to put some of the things that Jesus has said about the end times in order to create an interpretive framework for the revelation. So what I'm doing in this is I'm trying to say, how did Jesus understand the last days? As opposed to, how do I understand the last days? So I'm going back to the source. So I'm saying, if Jesus believed that the last days looked like this, then that means that should supersede any of my impressions of the text. So the Exodus, for example, is a well-established reference point for the Revelation. This is how God redeems his people. And so obviously Exodus is a clear establishment. How does God deliver his people out of a sinful world? So the Exodus is obviously a form of reference. And we will see, especially today, that that's what it's like. Especially the cataclysms of... Hail and mountains being thrown into sea. It's the whole idea of God shaking the heavens and the earth. And no doubt the relatively swift destruction of Egypt over the ten plagues gives a, a lot of credence to the revelation being set over a short seven-year period. So we don't know how long the plagues were, but we believe it was relatively quick. Maybe over the process of a year. Maybe even over the process of a few months. We have no idea, but we know it was relatively short. And for this reason, we tend to think, yeah, but, it, you know, that's relatively quick. As an unbeliever living in a Christian home, I thought the signs, again, of the end times would be obvious enough for me to change my life. You know, obviously when I start seeing all these things falling down and demons running around, you know, good Lord, this is great time to be a Christian, You know, get myself sealed. This is foolish. Not only because I believe that it could shortchange God, but I didn't factor in my own very plausible death before such a time occurring. If I actually paid attention to the scriptures, I should have been obvious that the five foolish virgins in Jesus, Jesus' parables, were depicting me. Being aware of Christ's return, but not being prepared for it. When Jesus comes, will he find faith in the earth? Well, he wouldn't have found it from me if he came in my teenage years. So what does Jesus actually say in Matthew 24? Firstly, the coming of the day of judgment will come when the world is not expecting it. And we have to take that seriously. Let me read verses 36 to 44. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware... Look, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So contrary to popular belief, and in particular how the media portrays the end times in its own secular way, The end of the world will not come with great cosmic signs of stars falling and moon turning into red uh, and demons flying around terrorizing unbelievers. It would appear that the only frame of reference for the people at the time of Noah and the time of Lot was their preaching. And the fact that Noah was building a massive ark on dry land. Well, what's he doing that for? And again... This will again lead to my application. It's that whole idea of that, well, what do what do Christians do? Why are Christians doing stuff so contrary to what is practical? Well, we are pilgrims. We're preparing for our lives beyond this world. Reading from Second Peter two, five to eight. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, then when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, as for their righteous men, lived among. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So the only thing they had as a frame of reference was the fact that these guys were saying, this is, what you're doing is wrong. There was no cosmic signs. In fact, listen to the men of Sodom as they speak to Lot. Genesis 19.9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Does that sound like men who felt that this was their last day on earth? That sound like men who had business to take care of, and Lot was a part of it. But isn't it Funny how, again, in their words, we can see the the words of our modern society. It sounds a lot, a lot of like "Don't judge me. Let me be me. Let me stand in my little god bubble. Who are you to judge me?" And like Lot, they were planning to cancel us. My second thing that we need to regard is that the end times being stretched over a long period of time, namely from the time of the resurrection to the return of Christ, seems to fit better with the mission of preaching the gospel to all the nations. So why a, sh- a long period as opposed to a short period? If that's how God done it in Egypt, why does he do that again? Because now God is not just delivering Israelites who he wants to believe. He is now delivering the whole world and those who would believe. Matthew 24, 9 to 14. Then they will deliver you up to to tribulation and put you to death, speaking of those who live in the last days. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now here's the text. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So that's God's paradigm for the end times, is that the gospel has to be preached throughout all the nations, hence the long drawn out time. This is where I believe Daniel 2 in particular is important, because it doesn't just charts the successive empires, but also the spread of Yahwehism and the gospel. We see when Daniel and his friends um, are in in, um, Babylon, they have an influence on Nebuchadnezzar. They have that ability to introduce who Yahweh is to Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar with differing, with differing effects. Nebuchadnezzar, to some extent, seems to accept that there is Yahweh. He is real. But Belshazzar doesn't and suffers greatly for it. Daniel goes on to have an influence on, on Darius and impacts the way that they see Yahweh. We also see of Ezra, Esther and Mordecai and their influence on Xerxes, the very famous Xerxes. Then we go on to the Greeks and, and the Ptolemies. The production of the Septuagint was created by the Ptolemies. They commissioned the production of a Greek translation of the Old Testament. One of the frame reference we have. So even within the context of Greek culture... Yahwehism was permeating into it as well and being spread. So the influence, then we go on to the Roman Empire. Now obviously the Roman Empire built roads and obviously pacified many nations. And this gave the opportunity for the gospel to be spread. And we see Paul in the book of Acts using that as an opportunity to go to many places in order to preach the gospel. So this whole pattern of empire was being used to obviously convey the gospel. Only, not only that, not, unlike with all the other nations before them, but to have Rome come to a point where Christianity becomes its primary religion. And to some extent, we will say, even becomes the foundation for Western civilization as a whole. Not the Roman Empire raw, but the Roman Empire in its Christian form. We need to appreciate that with the seemingly negative aspect of empirical expansion also comes the means for safe passage to areas that were previously hostile to foreign intervention. Missionaries can now go to areas that have been pacified in which would not have been accessible to them otherwise. Colonialism has certainly fallen out of favor in our current times. But we must not lose the perspective that God is establishing his sovereignty through these powers. God has no need to regard our cultural enclaves, you know, where we want to keep ourselves. We just want to purify our own culture. You have no right to your own circle of where we don't want to be touched, as though you have a right to be immune to the shaking up of the world. You have a right to hear the gospel. And God will not appreciate your cultural boundaries in doing so. Leave us alone. We don't need that white man's religion. God doesn't respect that and doesn't need to. How do we know God uses these empires? Isaiah 45, 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. There's that whole idea of cultures not being able to close the gates on Cyrus' rule. Jeremiah 27, 6-7. Now I have given all these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, The king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him all the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his sons and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make them their slave. As you see from the tail end of that last verse, it's not all good news for the nation that God is about to promote. Eventually, they will give way to another and they will finally be, (laughs) will be only, you know, that will only lead to their own, as it were, incarceration and made into slaves. It will only be God's kingdom that will stand at the end. And eternally so. So given this sketch of a framework, let us deal with the text itself. So let's go to 8. So Revelation 8. Let's run through this as time is against us. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and there were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as I flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So what do we make of this? Well, The prayers of the saints, which we saw under the altar in chapter 6, again, have been responded to. They're asking for God's vindication. They say, Lord, it's not right. And again, this is something that we need to obviously develop, and I think revelations is there, that, Lord, we really want justice. And we want to see those who have done these things to us pay the price for what they have done. Oh, for a sense of justice again, eh? How long, O Lord? And this is a response. That fire is now thrown onto earth. That is trouble. That peals of thunder is saying there's trouble ahead. So in verses 16 to 13, the first four trumpet judgments look like ecological disasters. And at the backdrop, I remember, is, is Exodus. And it reminds us of the judgments against Egypt, the, the assault God made against the gods of Egypt, as it were. That, to some extent, all these ecological events were tied up with things that the Egyptians worshipped. And they were crumbling before their throne. It, it was the failure of their gods to save them. And he makes this, so this assault against the earth is, again, a similar thing. That the things that we're trying to keep to ourselves to preserve us are actually falling apart. It's hard to determine whether these are just direct actions from God or unintended consequences by what man is doing to the earth. I think it's probably best understood as a mixture of both. That to some extent... As civilis- civilization has grown, as people have developed cities and all the rest of it, it comes with unintended consequences, like polluted rivers. Rivers that people, as they drink from them, have died. Pollution that obviously has changed the nature of the air and has changed everything, even to this point where obviously we, we you know climate change is a massive issue at the moment for so many people, that we have done this to ourselves. And to some extent, it is the will of God being fulfilled by man's own hand. And alongside this, we have all those other cataclysmic events like earthquakes and hurricanes and and the such, which, again, are very much natural events. But it's the world as we see it falling apart. As one commentator puts it, it's a a process of decreation. In order for the new creation to emerge, this one is being run down. And to some extent, I believe that's what's going on. So even for the, even as a, as, a, as a means of trying to understand what does it mean by the stars being blocked out, and I believe that that may even very well be an allusion to light pollution. The fact that we can't see the stars. Previous, before all the lights were going on in all the blocks and you know, street light and all the rest of it, you would have had a clear picture of the sky. And one of the things that, again, was helpful for, especially for ancient man, was that ability to look up at the vastness of the heavens and suddenly realize there has to be a God. This is not some happy accident. Now we can't look up, especially those of us who live in the cities, and see the vastness of the creation of God. We just see what man has built. And to some extent, that blocking out of the light of the stars has deluded us into thinking, well, everything I see, man has done. So why is there a God? Why do I have to look up? Look at what man has done. We, we're great. We're amazing. It's, it's, if it's helpful, use it. Let's go to chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke from the shaft then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like, bre- like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They, had, they have tails and stings like scorpions. And their, power, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth, sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire, sapphire, and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths, and in their tails, and in their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound." the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and the idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot save cannot which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts So, it's worth starting off here by saying that the the trumpets now, the fifth trumpets, and it's quite interesting because when you look at Exodus 9, a similar comparison is made at the fifth plague, that now the plagues only affect the unbelieving world. The saved who are sealed will not be affected by this. And, and that's exactly the same thing that God tells to Moses. He says that now I will make a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And so there's a similar pattern there with Exodus. So this text can prove one of the toughest challenges for those who take a more literalist view of Revelation. Revelation. Are they really going to believe that demons are going to be flying around tormenting unbelievers? And I think that it will be too much too much on the nose for a subtle warning that the world is coming to an end. I mean, if you saw a demon harassing you that looked like this, <laughs> you're, you're going to know that something's up. But we believe that this is... Maybe not so much a symbol, but a picture of what's happening in the spiritual realm. That new demons are going to be released. New ideas are going to be released into the world that are going to change the course of history. One of the best ways to understand this passage is to look at Ezekiel 9. And I want to read a section of it because it's going to be helpful. So Ezekiel 9, verses 3 to 8, and it says this. Now the glory of God of Israel has gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case in his waist, at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the heads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said to, he said to him, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. So there's a, a process where there's an angel going on and all those who are weeping at the, the issues that are going on in, in, in Israel at the time, mark them because they're mine. But all those ones who are not concerned, who are at home with how Israel was the other angel that's coming behind him is going to strike that person. Your eye shall not spare and you shall not show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark. And beginning at my sanctuary, so beginning at the house of the Lord. Again, there's that pattern, isn't it? What does Peter say? Judgment begins where? At the house of the Lord. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck and struck in the city. And while they were striking, and I was left alone, and I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in an outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Are we to believe that in the time of Ezekiel, these men were being literally physically killed before them? Eventually, when the Babylonians will... Breach the wall and actually come in. We would actually will imagine that it was going to be a destruction. It, but it might not necessarily mean that all the people that God has marked will be saved. But it will mean that maybe a lot of those people that weren't marked will die. But at this particular moment, there was more of a spiritual death being being implied than a physical death. These people will be given over to spirits. Those who were marked and sealed were those who were not at home in Israel or in Jerusalem at that time. They sighed over the idolatry that they saw. They were not comfortable in it. And God said, these guys are mine. But all those that were comfortable with the idolatry in Israel, they were given over. So much like what we see within the Gospels, isn't it? The sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tears. The angels are actively marking off the harvest of the great day. So it's not just the mark of the beast that we are supposed to identify here. We're supposed to see that the seal of those on their foreheads that are God's. And this again has always been with me that what is the mark of the beast? Is it a chip in your Again, a chip in your, in, in, in your head or a hand. I believe that if we understand the ancient language, it's more about what we think and what we do. What we think and what we do. And right now, Ezekiel 9 brings that connection to what we think and do. I'm thinking, this, I'm uncomfortable in this place. And so God's sealing them. Other people are like, hey, man, this is cool. We're modernizing. We're progressives. And they're being sealed by the devil. So in order to get to the heart of our current age, relating this stuff, obviously, to what we are going through now, we need to see how we, are, we have evolved from our ancient pagan ancestors. In other words, We'll go, well, what does does idolatry look like now? And, you know, we don't really bow down to statues and all the rest of it. We're way past that. Quick quote from G.K. Chesterton. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. So throwing away the gods doesn't really change the religious impulse in us. Man is religious to the core. I, I, I literally laugh at work when people say, um, you know, and those of no faith. I said, everybody believes in something. If they, if they get up and they brush their teeth and they wash their face, they're doing it for a reason. Men who live for nothing don't do that. Men that have no reason to live do not do that. They will arise. You know, you can, you can, I, 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 I mean, I'll give you this. I, you know, you've got the non-theistic religious and the theistic religious. Let's put it like that. But even that can be a misleading. In the ancient world, it was always towards some kind of figure. But today, it will look different. But because we share a common humanity with our ancient ancestors, we need to seek what was behind the idols. So in other words, people never worshipped idols for the idols themselves. Like as if Baal was an end, a means to an end. They were looking for other things that we look for today, which is prosperity, power, victory. Knowledge, fertility, comfort, fame, and even peace. These are all things that we seek within the realm of the religious affections. And so we see these things mirrored within sports, education, entertainment, careers, or even chocolate. we may hold these things superficially as a means to an end but there is an end within them that we are really seeking how often have we heard i live for this or that i live for the weekend to rave i live to go to that pub and it's, it's it's such a that's what i live for or my life will mean nothing without this or that That person's not in my life, and life's not worth living. If I didn't have my career. The seemingly innocent things that we worship in place of God are not nothing. But as we will see from Corinthians, they're actually powered by demons. There are demons that will get behind it and say, as long as you don't worship God, I will make these things a religious experience for you. I'll give you that enrichment. It says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel who israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participates participants in the altar why do i imply what do i imply then the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything no i imply that whatever pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to god i do not want you to be participants with demons you cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of demons you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than we than, than he? Again, something to think about for later on, isn't it? Is this my real, as I do this, is this my only hope? Am I doing this as, Lord, beyond all the things that I have around me that I could rely on, I'm really hoping on this. And if that's not true, you should let the cup pass. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. And again, this is my tying it in into our chapter 9 there. Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Though the insincerity of liars, through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving. By those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So that's First Timothy four one five. Again, that whole idea of the spirits, isn't it? That doctrine's been going out. That these things are not tormenting us through physical suffering, so to speak. But actually tormenting us with ideas. Pushing us to do it, you know. Go and buy that new, go and get the handbag. Go and get it. Go on. It will make you so happy. Go and get the new iPhone. Go on. It will, This is going to be it. This is going to make you. Those ideas being promoted. We're seeing salvation in them. Idolatry is not just an ancient problem, but a modern one too. These new demons we see in this chapter to be, you know, to be a new breed that will be able to um, take people's idolatry to a new level. So it factors into the whole fact that people won't worship down to physical statues anymore. It now knows it needs to modernize and change with the times. I believe that this is represented in an unashamed turn within ourselves. Let me unpack this a little bit. In the ancient world, the idol was a form of self-reflection. In other words, you built it to promote your own ideas. But took the form of worshipping something external to you. So this is what I want. This is what I embody. And I build it and then then you externalize it and then you worship it. But the modern concept of this has, has come to the point where we're no longer ashamed to worship ourselves. So now modern idolatry looks like Just worship you. Don't even bother with the external anymore. And I believe that this is where our world is going to. Reinvent yourself. Be whatever you want to be. Change your ethnicity. Change your sex. Be whatever you want to be. Create a gradient. Whatever you want to be. That look within. Look within yourself. Look within you. We're getting to the point where we are unashamed now to have that externality, to project it onto something else. And this is what these demons, I believe, are empowering us to do. To the point where before, this type of worship was corporate. Now we don't even need it to be corporate anymore. I don't need other people to be involved in this. This is about me. And the island of me, the deification of oneself and all the psychosis that comes with it. And we've got all this and we've got what? The metaverse to come, right? <laughs> Boy. Let's see how many people get entangled in that. The believer may not be able to avoid physical or financial harm during this entire in the entirety of the end time process, this is not about the fact that they are protected from physical harm or financial harm for the decisions that they make, but they will be spared the spiritual torment the unbeliever will experience. In other words, if you're sealed with God, it's about God sealing your mind. You won't be carried away with the mind, the madness that the world is carried on with. We are sealed from these demons because they can't speak to us the same way they can speak to these guys. As the sixth trumpet is sounded, it may be helpful to see this as the destruction caused by ideologies fueled by demons. So, what's this new army that comes up? Powers which are religiously, um, um, religiously followed by humans, I believe. It's a better way to understand it. To the destruction of other humans. So, the time. So, this whole idea of the time. These are going to be released at specific times and specific years. These are ideas that are going to come. And they've got their time to reign. And I believe that these are what we have seen, the manifestation of these new ideas. Ideologically driven people who will kill other people in order to get these ideas instilled on earth. Well, what's the significance of the river Euphrates? Well, strangely enough, in the time of Rome, the river Euphrates was marked the border of the eastern kingdom. Beyond the the river Euphrates lied the Parthians and other such tribes that the Romans could not defeat. Tried. And so to some extent, it marked the end of Rome's power. We can can rule up to here, but what lies beyond here, we ain't ready for that. So for John to use this in this Context, he says, what's coming beyond these empires, you are not ready for it. They will terrify the earth in such a way that you're going to look like Rome will look like puppies. What kind of people are we talking about? We're talking about Nazis. Terrifying the earth. We're talking about communists with the with the belief that men are just materials to be used for a greater ideal who waste away people, ideologies that fuel huge armies, and they come in for us. And the weirdest thing is that we haven't seen nothing yet. Chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud and with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun. And his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea. And his left foot on the land. And called out with a loud voice. With a lion roaring. Like a lion roaring, sorry. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said. And do not write it down. And the angel whom... I saw, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, uh, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from the heaven from heaven, spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me this little, a little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And then I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten in my stomach, it was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations, languages and kings. So moving swiftly on, chapter 11. Sorry, chapter 10. There is now a pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, which is, again, mirrored within the sixth and the seventh seal. So there's that pause to kind of explain some little detail that is happening between these things. And the mighty angel appears with a rainbow, and again, fiery legs, and the seven peals of thunder as he, as he speaks. And this all foretells that the judgment is ahead. The rainbow, judgment of the Lord. I won't, I won't flood it, but something else is coming. The fiery legs, judgment. The seven funders, judgment. For this one, this is, what's about to happen is that the mystery of redemption is about to be revealed. In other words, something that even John hears and he gets, a, he gets a preliminary hearing of, he knows that something is about to come, but he's not allowed to tell us what it is. The same way Daniel was not allowed to tell us what was coming. There is much similarity to John eating the scroll as to Ezekiel doing the same in Ezekiel 3. The sweetness would appear to allude to God's plan of redemption. God, you heard us. You've heard our prayer. You, you, you're going to respond. Great. It's good. God is doing something. So there's that sweetness to it, but the bitterness now seems to reflect the pain of the persecution and tribulations that will come through this time. Be suffering at the hands of the unbelieving world. So the plan of redemption is good news in so many respects, but it also brings with it the pain, the way of the cross, one might even say. We're going to have to go through stuff. We are going to have to go through some stuff that's going to be difficult, but it's still good news. John is also then told to prophesy to many people, nations, languages, and kings, which also seems to allude to these events happening over a long period of time, as opposed to many people in one period of time. That the prophecy is something that goes on and repeats throughout history. We need to go through it. God's plan of redemption is being enacted. We are going through that point. God is redeeming us, but it's it's going to hurt. It's going to cost us something. Let's move swiftly on. Chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm, harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky. They have no that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over their waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless, bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some, of, some from the people and the tribes and the languages and the nations will gaze at their bodies, their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fell. Fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who, it, who was, for you have taken your great power, Begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your saints, the prophets, the rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen with his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. It's interesting, isn't it, that the last woe isn't some terrifying thing like we think of some new cataclysm, some new demons being released. It's actually Jesus and God showing up. The most devastating thing the world can have now is God now revealed. Whoa! <laughs> The party's really over now. So to the to the church, it is our delight. But to the world, when Jesus shows up, that really is the last woe. So let me go over some of the details of here that I think are being brought forward. The measuring of the temple is an expression of safety. So measuring is at that place of where, 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 where am I going to put the boundaries of what's going, to, what's going to happen? and Where am I going to protect? And, and he's, he's been given to those believers. So the temple are a picture of the believers. So remember that from the New Testament, we are the temple of God. So when we see the temple, it symbolically represents the church, the new Israel. We are the, we are the people of God. And God is measuring it and saying, these people are safe. We saw that obviously reflected in the whole idea of being sealed and not being tormented by demons as others are. So we are safe and we are spared tribulation so it would appear and are safe. So this is talking about physical tribulation, I believe, as opposed to that spiritual stuff. So this is actual tribulation. So those of us who have been privileged to grow up in, 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 I guess you could say the West, where the nation has has grown with a Christian ethos, are protected throughout time, for a long extended period of time, from the tribulations that someone in Saudi Arabia who wants to be a Christian doesn't. So in that sense, the the, the Christian ethos in the West has protected us. And God has prepared for that. And to some extent, it's not for nothing. It's to fuel those. Especially you going in hardships in other places, to send them Bibles, to send them the materials that they need. So God keeps a safe place. So those who are in the outer court again, there are many theories about this, whether it's unbelievers who are in the outer court, which is not measured, and those people have been cut off. But we believe that the better way to understand this is to look at these uh, those Christians or who are true Christians, but are exposed to tribulation. So they physically are going to go through it. So God doesn't measure them because their exposure to the unsaved world is such that they're not going to be speared. They're going to have to go through it. But they're in the outer court. They're part of the temple complex. But they're in they're in regimes. They're they're exposed to regimes that will do them harm. How do we understand the two witnesses? Well, we think this is better understood as represented in the church universally, as opposed to two individuals who appear in the last seven years, as traditionally people would believe. The acts that they perform are, again, not to be seen as literal, but also representative of the witness of the spirit-filled believer to the unbelieving world, such as typified by Moses in Egypt and Elijah in Israel at the time where Ahab was ruling, where there was a foreign, there was obviously that worship of Baal through Jezebel. So it's, it's a, so in a sense that what John is doing he's taking typical prophets who stood opposite, in opposition to a world, so to speak, that was hostile to them, and they are typified to be the universal believer. This is who we are. So they are the witnesses are the universal church who witness out to the world. They also symbolises two golden lampstands. Again, this brings us back to Zechariah, isn't it? Where we see that picture of the, of the lampstand of representing Israel and Revelation 1 to 3, which the church also, again, is typified as the, um, as the lampstands who Jesus stands amongst. In both Israel and the universal church are being typified. So Israel and the church or the new Israel in the New Testament. So the spirit-filled church also reminds us of the five wise virgins, isn't it? Being filled with the oil, being able to be supplied, they're, they're spirit-filled, they're being a light, they're being a witness, they're able to shine in the dark, so even if Jesus comes in the time where it's the darkest, they're ready, they've already got their lamps trimmed and burning, they're ready for him, and they're going through, so it's, it's again, it's a picture of that spirit-filled believer. The rejoicing of the world at the death of the witnesses can also be identified as the triumph of the pagans and the secular world over the church. We're living at a time where people think the church is dead, right? We think our influence is gone, so we are like that dead witness. To some extent, we have, we, we, have, we have become so secularized at the moment. We you know, we have we have minimized your effect. You see those lords um, you know, from the Church of England that sit in the House of Lords? We 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 cut off their witness. They couldn't stop gay marriage from going through. We've have we, we, won. And they send presents, we're we're happy. We're great. We're, we're, we're getting what we want. We're, we're, we're moving away from this, you know, Christianity and that dead religion. We're, we're, we're so happy now. And they triumph. But the church has been here often. They think they're dead and then all of a sudden we rise again. And then they're fearful. Like they're fearful when Jesus comes. That's the second one. And then when it rises and our, our influence grows again, and that's the, that's the history of the church. My brothers and sisters, we have been we have been called dead numerous times. Therefore, our witness has been gone, but we keep on going. Praise God! So even though they track, the, the, the world has seemingly you know uh, you think of the Roman arena the rejoicing as, as christians were were being killed and think of, of I, I even more prominently i've been going through this the, the jacobite revolution in france where you know getting that get, getting rid of, of christianity out of french life let's kill these guys let's, let's let's secularize let's let's chop the church off literally that's the french jacobite we we you know we i'm not going to let those guys pass that's what the french people believed in and they thought they got it. You know, Voltaire, isn't it? Again, that famous, you know, the church will die. But it carries on. But the church is vindicated by the rising up like Christ. And the prayers of the believers under the altar is answered. We, we will rise again. There will be a time where we feel that there's that final vindication. But ultimately, throughout the church age, we will, people will think that we are dead. But God will have his way. Uh, what do we do with this? Let's, let's land this. I know it's been long. God bless you for bearing with it. Are you in a situation where you can't see the forest for the trees? You know, you're standing in there amongst, amongst a load of trees and you're like going, I can't quite see the forest. It says, well, again, if I, my understanding of the book of Revelation is correct. And again, does stand to be proved whether it's correct, then we are standing in the midst of a battlefield which will only intensify the closer we come to the day of the Lord. We are already in the battle. There's no waiting for seven years to come. There's no trying to figure out where I am in the last seven years. We are already in the battle by my estimation. There is an argument that will also state that for all this talk of the world worsening, and this is, again, I have to answer this to some extent. To be honest, the fact is that the world is progressing. And people make this argument. There are less people in poverty than at any other time in world history. The same could be said for infant mortality and life expectancy, to name but a few. There are, we are at the, we we are, to be said, in a peak of progress, that may continue. Yet as I look back at the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, we have to note that the metals that constitute the makeup of the statue are in fact getting stronger. You know, gold is very malleable. But not as malleable as silver. Or bronze. Or steel. Or iron, should I say. which suggests some form of progression, right? That they're getting stronger as civilizations. But the value and the rarity of the metal is also digressing. To, which we reach, to where we reach a point where we have clay mixed with iron. So it would appear for all our progress, we are also at the same time being unmade. Technologically, we have progressed. But in terms of our awareness and knowledge of God, we no longer have that rarity, that purity within our culture. I want to read a couple of verses of highlight the whole idea of what do we, what do we, how do we take on that pilgrim mentality as we think about the world, as people are telling us, well, you know, don't be, be, be trying to get yourself out of the world. We're, we're, we're better off where we are. We're, we are making progress. We can reach utopia. And there's that ideology coming come, come again, isn't it? We can reach that place where we as humans support ourselves and we're fine. We can do it. Imagine there's no heaven. Easy if you try. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer builder is God. By faith Moses when he had grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking forward to the reward. That last part of chapter 11 is the reward of the believers. How at home are you in this world? And I, I don't mean that we don't do our plans, our normal things. This is not what I'm saying. We make ourselves comfortable, we 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 try to buy nice things and be all the rest of it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that Ezekiel nine passage that are we troubled by what we see around the world? What we see in our communities? Are we troubled with the ideas that are being promoted? Are we one of those people that tuck our heads and are are struggling with this and suddenly realize, as much as I am comfortable to some extent, I'm not really comfortable here. I want a place that God is going to build. Do we have that pilgrim mentality? That's what I believe Revelation is trying to capture for us, that pilgrim mentality in our mind. Are we looking for something better or are we going to settle for what we have here? There's that great temptation to make this life all I ever wanted. Again, I think of that song from the Prince of Egypt, All I Ever Wanted? And you really have to question, is this it? We saw that there from Moses in that last passage, isn't it? Is that, is Egypt it? Is that the best there is? Or can I hope for something better? And he considered that what God had to offer was better. I pray for you that you will have that pilgrim mentality today as we look at the seven trumpets of God. Amen. What a word. Praise God, could we all stand? so thankful for the fact that the trumpet, dear Lord God, is a representation of that which called us to alert. It was that what summoned Israel to war, it summoned them to come to meetings, it summoned them to, to be involved in what God is doing, in Lord God, and that's what those trumpets represent for us, dear Lord God, in Revelation, that call to alertness, it's a message for the church. But Lord God, again, as much as that trumpet was a, a, a sound of victory, and and, and a summoning there Lord God for the church it was also a warning for the world as the saints gathered there Lord God and as I guess we think about um, in the ancient days of Israel Lord God as those trumpets were sound it was a warning to the armies that opposed them there Lord that God was on their side Lord when the saints gathered there Lord God there was again trouble ahead Lord God trouble is not just ahead of us we're in it Lord God and we are being summoned there Lord God We have been summoned weekly, Lord God. We've been summoned daily, dear Lord God, to come to your service, to do the things that we need to do. And I pray that we will do them day by day. We will be a witness, Lord, as it were. Lord, in the spirit of Moses, in the spirit of Elijah, dear God. But even more importantly, in the spirit of Christ, dear Lord God. That even if we should suffer harm, dear Lord God, we will do so, dear Lord. Knowing, dear Lord Father, so, so, so they treated my Savior, dear God, so shall it be with me. But Lord, I know that you will vindicate us, dear Lord God, and we will not be ashamed of our justice. We will not be ashamed of our vindication. The world that would rather see us, dear Lord, blotted out, dear Lord God, will see. If not today, dear Lord God, they will see one day that, Lord Father, there is no quiet in the church of God. So thank you for the fact that, Lord, you have summoned us and made it clear through your word in Jesus' name.